Well, brethren, we are here, as we all know, on the Feast of First Fruits, as it's called in the Old Testament, the day of Pentecost, 2012. And we always ask, Mr. Herbert Armstrong used to ask for so many decades, why are we here? And, of course, some of the smart ladies would say we're here because we're here because we're here. <laughs> but we're here because God Almighty commands us to keep these holy days. And it is important to understand that we are the only church that is those churches descended from Mr. Armstrong that really keep those days in the right way with the right understanding. And we can be very grateful for that because they do picture the plan of God. And as I've told you so many times, brethren, and I hope all of you know, and I hope all of you younger people who've come here can understand, we are in this church, particularly the living church of God, restoring original Christianity. That's one of the themes we always want to have in mind. We are restoring original Christianity, the Christianity that Christ practiced, the Christianity that Peter and Paul and James and John and the original apostles and the original church of God practiced. That is the true Christianity. And it's extremely important that we understand that. Any of you new people or visitors, I hope we can all understand that and appreciate that. That doesn't mean we're perfect. We're not doing it perfectly right, but we're trying to, and we're growing in it. And that's what God wants us to do. We're here because as part of restoring original Christianity, the eternal God began to call out a special people, the first fruits, many thousands of years ago. Not many, but a few thousand years ago, even back during the time of Moses, as we read in Acts chapter 7. You might turn there with me at this time. Turn to Acts chapter 7. This is something we used to go over, I think, a little bit more than we do nowadays, but it is an important part of understanding who we are. He's been talking about how Moses led Israel out of Egypt with signs and wonders. And in verse 37, Acts chapter 7 and verse 37, this is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like unto me from among your brethren. Him you shall hear. And we certainly do need to hear Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God who came into this earth reveal who God is and what he's really like. This is he who was in the church, as it is in the, New, in the King James Version, the original King James, and it's correctly translated either way, congregation or church. This is he who was in the church in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles, the great revelation of the purpose of human existence. God began to reveal some of that even back at that time. So this was that Moses and the congregation of Israel and that purpose of life, the oracles of God began to be revealed at that time. Now, it's all part of God's truth. It's all part of God's plan. Turn to Exodus chapter 34. Mr. Soselka read part of this. I'll read a little bit uh, of this here as well. Back in Exodus chapter 34... And I want to review uh, this meaning of the day of Pentecost here because that's why we're here. Exodus 34, verse 1. The Eternal said to Moses, cut two tablets of stone like the first ones, and I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablet. So he began to put again, God wrote again, the Ten Commandments. 
the ten words, the basic way of God. In verse 5, the eternal descended and a cloud stood with them there and proclaimed the name of the eternal. Show them the glory and the power of the great God. And then you find over in verse 10, he said, Behold, I will make a covenant before all your people, and I will do marvels such as has not been done in the earth nor in any nation. And at all the people among who shall, you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it, it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. And God did begin to pour out power at that time more than he had ever done. Great power among them, as we know, and performing miracle after miracle and bringing Israel out of Egypt and so on. Then, as you read in verse uh, 18, let's begin reading again there. He says, then he told them what to do. The feast of unleavened bread you shall keep. So we keep the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread as I commanded you. And he said down in verse 21, six days you shall work. But on the seventh day you shall rest, in plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. reason I'm reading this, brethren, I think it's important for all of you, brethren, to understand that throughout God's commands to keep the holy days on several occasions, not just here, you will find he also refers to the weekly Sabbath. Because the holy days are simply an extension of God's Sabbaths. Sabbaths, I want you to get the S. He punished ancient Israel for two great sins, idolatry and breaking his Sabbaths, plural. They broke the weekly Sabbath and they broke the annual Sabbaths. And that's part of God's plan. The weekly Sabbath tells us who God is, the Creator. It also tells us that He rested on the seventh day, picturing the coming millennium. The annual Sabbath pictures the whole plan of God, as we shall see, all the way through. Passover pictures that we need a Savior. It has to be under the blood of Christ to have our sins forgiven. Unleavened bread shows we're to grow in grace and in knowledge and come out of sin. The feast of first fruits, and we are the first fruits, or Pentecost, which simply means count 50, as it is called in the New Testament. This festival pictures God's blessing on the early harvest. As we'll see, the ancient priests in Israel blessed the first fruits. Often in ancient, not ancient, but even modern Greece and Rome, you'll find, as you see in sometimes television shows and the news, they'll show the Greek priests, the Orthodox priests, their big black robes up, blessing the fishing fleets as they go out. Traditionally, that's a tradition they've changed and did their own way. It's not necessarily wrong, but God's priests blessed the first fruits, what God did. And God's blessing is on the first fruits today, not just physically and giving them physical food, but in giving us today spiritual food, spiritual understanding, all through what? The Holy Spirit. They did not have the Holy Spirit back then. This blessing today comes through the Holy Spirit, the power by which we can overcome, the power by which we can put out sin, the power with which we can grow in grace and in knowledge under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's what this is all about, and we do need to understand that. Very important part of grasping this, and I don't think we used to understand that part perhaps as well as we should. So he tells us here to keep the feast of the weeks of the first fruits of the wheat harvest and the feast of end gathering. Remember, it's called the Feast of Tabernacles, 
But on a number of places, it's also called the end gathering because all of God's festivals, again, some of you are new, are based upon the harvest seasons of Palestine. God is preparing today a spiritual harvest. So the Passover is at the very beginning, and during the Passover they cut a wave sheaf to wave that very first shock of grain before God asked God's blessing on the early spring harvest. And then that harvest was to be completed by Pentecost. And so they thank God for that. And so that after that seven-week period came the Feast of First Fruits. And then the Feast of Ingathering. Of course, before that comes the Feast of Trumpets, picturing Christ coming at the second trumpet, or about that time, the warning. We see that actually it's probably between trumpets and atonement. Then the Feast of Atonement, or at one mat, when all humanity is made at one with God during the millennium. And then you have the great fall harvest of souls all during that millennium when God calls everybody pictured by the feast of ingathering, the ingathering of the great harvest. That's why that name is given to it in the Old Testament. It all has to do with the harvest seasons of Palestine. And then, of course, you have the one day, which is not given much of a name in the Old Testament, In the New Testament, we got the name from Revelation 20. We call it the Great White Throne Judgment Day. And that is the time when God will give everyone an opportunity to understand who never understood before the whole purpose of God. Boy, is that a wonderful understanding. I was just reading here and thinking about telling you about in the Wall Street Journal the other day, this young man A very touching story, Sergeant uh, Keith Benson, 1st Platoon Medic, liked to joke with the soldiers, don't mess with me or I'll cut off your morphine. And he kind of joked with them, of course. He liked them, he kidded with them, tried to keep them happy. On January 18th, about halfway through his combat tour, shortly before he's scheduled to leave home, the 27-year-old, just 27-year-old soldier, sat in his room at an army base in the Snowy Mountains, near the Pakistan border. He held a 9 millimeter pistol, the weapon medics carried to protect their patients in battle. He put the muzzle in his head and pulled the trigger. He left behind a two-word note. I'm sorry. A lot of people in this world are sorry. Why are they sorry? Why are these young men over there killing themselves? They're sorry. Because they're all mixed up. They don't know God. God is not real to them. Their preachers do not make it real to them. They have no real purpose in life. And they go floundering around and floundering around. I hope all of you young people can really wake up. Perhaps in a way you have never awakened. And begin to find out the truth of the God of the Bible. And begin to prove these holy days to yourself. And the importance of keeping them, the importance of walking with Jesus Christ, the Christ of the Bible, and having a purpose in your life. We can be very sorry for this young man. And I am. And the thousands of him, as the article goes on, who are beginning to kill themselves. He took care of others, but finally it got to him. Some of them over there began to feel guilty because they were alive. Why? They saw dozens of their friends being blown to bits. And it made them feel guilty because they were the ones still living. Why am I living? And my friends are all dead. What's going on? 
Satan the devil has utterly deceived this world. These holy days we keep, brethren, help us understand there is a real purpose in life. And we need to wake up and appreciate it and really understand that purpose. God is calling you to be the first fruits and to help teach these young people as they come up again in the great white throne judgment. This man's young man's life is not gone forever. It's gone for a split second so far as he's concerned. He's dead. Bang! The next thing he wakes up and maybe Mr. Soselka or Mr. Ames or Dr. Vanell or me or one of you out there will say, well, look, uh, Sergeant Benson, you're no longer a sergeant killing people in an army or a medic. You're in God's kingdom. It's a wonderful thing. Let me explain to you why you're here, why God you gave God gave you life in the first place. If you overcome and I overcome and we really do become those first fruits, we can really help this young man. Special specialist Keith Benson. He will be there. He didn't understand God's truth. He will be there in the great white throne judgment. So we're going to have the opportunity to help millions of people who live on over into tomorrow's world. And during that thousand years, we will teach them. And then other hundreds of millions and perhaps billions of human beings who never understood the truth at all. It shows he was a nice young man. He helped others. But it finally got to him, seeing all these people suffering and being blown to bits and dying all around him. He thought, I can't take this anymore. I'm sorry. Pow. He will be there. And you can help him and I can help him. We need to understand how wonderful God's plan is that we are called today out of this mixed up rotten world to understand God's truth and be among those first fruits to help these people who never understood. And then we need to understand the magnificent meaning of the last great day. The world's churches don't even begin to understand that. They'll make fun of us when we talk about it. I've had a program once or twice that they didn't like. I think Mr. Ames' program even got us kicked off a station in West Texas because the local preachers didn't like to hear about a great white throne judgment. They didn't like to hear about God giving people a second chance, as they called it. That made them mad. God's not giving anyone a second chance. He's going to give everyone a genuine first chance they never had before. And this church and only this church understands that. So let's be grateful for these holy days. And you young people, you're not just part of a church. You're not just in a Saturday church keeping Saturday instead of Sunday. You're in a church that understands the purpose of human existence far more than all these other churches out in the world put together. You say, well, why are we so small? Because we are the first fruits. That's why the first fruits was a very tiny harvest compared to the big harvest. And God shows that by this very festival and by the other examples of God's church all the way through. We are those first fruits and God is calling us out ahead of time to qualify to be those kings and priests in a few years helping all these people, millions of young people too, got killed in war. Their legs got blown off. Some of them go home and they're helpless. They're crippled. They can't get a job. Their wife divorced them and married someone else because they're all disfigured and crippled. Some of them kill themselves as the article goes on. Their lives are all messed up because of war. The time will come when there is war no more. 
There's not going to be broken marriages. There's not going to be drug addicts. There's not going to be any of this stuff done because people will have God's Holy Spirit and we have the first fruits can help them at that time. So let's realize the opportunity that we have, brethren, and appreciate it uh, very, very much. Well, now, brethren, let's turn at this point, if you would, to uh, Leviticus chapter 23. This, of course, is the basic scripture we use about the holy days. And I could tell any of you who are new, the holy days, as you know, if you look at it, were kept by the New Testament church of God. And I would like to ask all of you who are new, if you haven't done so, to please write for, call for, maybe it's out on the literature table, I don't know, the booklet on the holy days. It's called the holy days, God's master plan that gives you the whole picture and explains all these verses that I don't have time to do in this particular sermon, how the holy days were kept by Peter, John, James, and so on in the New Testament. And they were kept for hundreds of years until they were gradually systematically stamped out by the black-robed early priests of what became the Catholic Church. All that was stamped out. And a different type of Christianity was introduced which completely squashed the original Christianity that we're trying to restore. And God is helping us do that. But here we read Leviticus, not that we're under Levitical priesthood, but because it's the one chapter that lists all seven of the holy days. So let's turn back there. He says, these are the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be feasts. These are my feasts. Six days you shall work. The seventh day is the Sabbath. So he's talking here about the weekly Sabbath. Again, the weekly Sabbath is explained. Notice again, right along with the annual Sabbath. They're all part of God's plan. You don't just keep, you know, the Seventh-day Adventists. I have some Adventist friends. They're nice people. They understand about the weekly Sabbath, although many of them don't keep it the way we do at all. But they understand it. But they don't keep the holy days. They're blinded. They don't understand God's plan. They're blinded. They think they're going to heaven for a thousand years and go over the record of the saints and the record of all human lives in what they call the investigative judgment. Their prophetess, Ellen G. White, had a bunch of visions and dreams. And frankly, she was a kind of a demented woman that had all kinds of strange ideas. Very strange. And they follow her to this day to a certain extent. I've had many Adventists apologize to me and say, well, I'm an Adventist, but I don't follow everything Mrs. White taught. They, they, they bring that up themselves. They realize something's going on. They don't understand the full truth. The Jews keep the Sabbath, but they don't believe in Jesus Christ. And they don't keep the holy days properly. They don't understand the plan of God. They keep the holy days in a different time with a completely different understanding. So we have the understanding because we've been willing to obey God. And because God did it, he called us out of this world. He called us out to be those first fruits. So he talks about the weekly Sabbath here. And then he says, verse 4, These are the feasts of the eternal, holy convocations, commanded assemblies, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times, or as the King James says, in their seasons, which I think is a better translation, the harvest seasons of Palestine. On the fourteenth day of the first month is the Lord's Passover, then on the 15th day, you begin to keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We've gone over that a few weeks ago. And then in verse 9, the Lord spoke to Moses, 
When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. So here's a first sprig of barley that's brought to the high priest, and that man waves it before God, asking God's blessing on that early harvest. It was to be accepted on your behalf on the day after the Sabbath. And if it was an annual Sabbath, then Pentecost would not have to be counted because it would always fall on the same day. That obviously is the weekly Sabbath during the days of unleavened bread. So they counted from that weekly Sabbath. The church used to misunderstand. We have grown in grace and in knowledge. We've made a couple of changes recently, not really changes, but just enlarging our understanding of the wedding supper and the fact that the Christians will be able to go up and see God at their wedding supper. That's not a contradiction. We're not going to heaven as our eternal reward, but we will go there briefly. We understand a larger version of the great falling away. It's going to be a massive turning away and rebellion against God beyond what we used to fully grasp or talk about. We're growing. You say, well, it's wrong to grow. No, Mr. Armstrong always grew. He used to tell us to keep the day of Pentecost on Monday. I know Mr. and Mrs. Davis are sitting there. They remember that. We always kept it on Monday. Finally, he came to realize that it was on Sunday. And he checked into the details of it. It had been explained to him by others, but it was hard for him to get because he was a stickler to do exactly what God said. He wanted to do that. So we changed. And now we keep the day of Pentecost on Sunday And we're glad to do that because that is more correct. We will grow in grace and in knowledge in every way. And brethren and you young people, if God shows me and shows our council of elders, let's be humble enough, let's be conquered by God so that if God clearly shows us to do something, we will say, yes, Lord, and we will do it. This is the church of God. This is restoring original Christianity. We've got to be conquered enough to do what God says. It always works. I've been in God's church now uh, 62 and a half years. And I've been in God's full-time work 60 years. I graduated just about this time in late May or early June, 60 years ago, and immediately began my full-time ministry. I wasn't ordained the first six months, but I was leading a nationwide baptizing tour baptizing people, laying my hands on them for the receipt of the Holy Spirit. If that is the ministry, I don't know what is. I was an acting minister, raised up the church in San Diego, raised up the church up in Seattle, Washington, and so on. So I've been around and seen these things, and I've seen people all over. If you will surrender to God and do what God says and put your faith and trust in God, God will bless you and God will guide you. Will God always give you every blessing the way that you want right now? No. Mr. James Hart gave a wonderful sermon the other day, and I don't want in any way to take from that. I, I love him, I admire him, and I agree with what he said. But if you misunderstood it, you could think, well, God is bound to bless you in every way right here and now immediately. But you read the whole Bible, and it shows that once in a while, for instance, God did not heal everybody right now. Paul had this thing put on him and he prayed three times that God would take away this affliction. God said, no, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. You read back in, I forget which place it is, he left left Trophimus sick at Miletus, this young man helping him. 
And then I think it was in the book of the Philippians or Colossians, it shows how Epaphroditus, he was sending back to one of the churches, and he said he'd been sick near unto death. And God healed him. I would have had sorrow after sorrow if he had died, indicating that Paul realized he could die. God doesn't heal everybody in this life right now perfectly, so don't ever give up on God. Let the whole Bible give you understanding. As Mr. Hart brought out, God blessed him. You can say, well, God didn't bless you that much, Mr. Hart. He didn't pour out the windows of heaven. How come you aren't as rich as Warren Buffett? Warren Buffett has got more than you've got. (laughs) That's right. He has. I kind of kid my wife. I tell her she married the wrong 81-year-old. Warren Buffett is, is two months younger than me, so he and I are the same age. But he's worth many tens of billions of dollars. But, of course, I just kid her about that. She doesn't want to marry Warren Buffett. (laughs) But at any rate, we have far, far greater riches. We have the understanding of the purpose of human existence. And if we do die, some of us, before the end of this age, which a number of us will. Yes, I understand that. A number of us will. The next split second, we will be in the kingdom of God. I'm not just sentimental. I mean that. I'm basing my life on that. You young people get it. That is real. And you young people don't feel sorry for us older people saying, well, I'm sorry, you're going to die, but I'm not. Better not think that way. I used to think like that, but then I had something happen. I think I told you about one of my best friends, Richard David Armstrong, was suddenly crushed in a car accident and died. He was 29 years old. 29. It suddenly jarred my brain. I thought, no, you don't all have to wait until you're 60 or 70 or 90 to die. Young people die too occasionally, and God allows that for reasons we don't always understand at the moment. I did later partially understand that, and I've explained that to you a little bit because Dick had some certain situations and, and so on, but he was a wonderful person, and I expect to see him in the kingdom. Nevertheless, God allowed his death, and he allowed others to die before 70 years of age. Most people live beyond 70. Mr. Parting, my dear friend, lived to be 94. Why don't we all live to be 94? Well, God said man's days are 70. He didn't say they'll all die on their 70th birthday, but we sort of average. Some die a little bit before 70, some die a little bit after 70. Let the Bible interpret the Bible. The Bible interprets the Bible to help us understand what is God's will. It is God's will to bless us. And I have seen that God has blessed and blessed and blessed his people who obeyed him through all these years. And he will do that. He's going to bless his first fruits. He's going to bring us into his everlasting kingdom. And nothing can stop it as long as we do our part. Nothing. All the powers of hell cannot override the power of God. So we want to have faith in that. So anyway, he shows how you're to count from the day after the Sabbath, verse 15. Seven Sabbaths or weeks are complete. Count 50 days. Pentecost. Count 50 to the day after the seventh Sabbath. That's right. Sunday is the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall offer a new grain offering and you shall bring from your habitations two loaves of two-tenths of an ephah, they shall be a fine flour, they shall be baked with leaven. These are the first fruits to the ever-living one. 
And of course, as Mr. Armstrong explained, as you read in the correspondence course, these two loaves pictured the Old Testament and the New Testament, the church of God in the wilderness and the New Testament church of God as well. So we are those loaves at this time, and we are the first fruits of God's blessing then was asked upon this harvest that was going to take place. And, and then he told them, of course, to keep that feast as an everlasting uh, thing. He said in verse 21, you shall claim on the same day, this 50th day, that it shall be a holy convocation, a commanded assembly, the 50th day, starting by counting the day after, or beginning with, I mean, the weekly Sabbath during the days of unleavened bread. And then you come to day 49 on seven Sabbaths later, and the next day, Sunday, is the 50th day. You shall do no customary work. It shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings. And you read back in, I don't want to turn there, but look it up. You want to want to write it in your notes. Look up in Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36. And it's about verse 22, I think. It shows that in tomorrow's world, they're going to keep God's statutes, his commandments and his statutes. A number of scriptures show that. The holy days are among God's statutes. And we're to keep the literal weekly Sabbath, but also that Sabbath is magnified in these holy days. And so we're here restoring original Christianity. So blessing on the loaves pictured God's blessing on the work back at that time and the power and help of God and the blessing on the loaves in the New Testament. The blessing God gives us is the power of God's Holy Spirit. That's how that ties in. And we do need to understand that. We're the first fruits of God's harvest. And God blesses us with the Holy Spirit. They didn't have God's Holy Spirit that back then. They couldn't have that. But the first fruits in the New Testament do have that. Now the Jews did not have God's Holy Spirit. So they do not understand the spiritual meaning of these feasts at all. They did not accept the Messiah. They were not given God's Spirit. But the true Christians are given God's Spirit. Notice back in Luke, in your New Testament now, Luke uh, chapter uh, uh, chapter 24, if you would turn there, Luke chapter 24. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 44. Then Jesus said to them, remember this was after his resurrection. If you look back over the preceding verses, he began to explain to them who he was. And then he said, verse 44, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things, notice, brethren, notice you new people, here's Jesus Christ speaking, all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Everything God wrote was fulfilled. He's showing the Hebrew order of the Old Testament, the threefold division the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. I know my next-to-youngest granddaughter is going to a sort of a Christian school, and they were teaching her the other day how many books in the Bible. Sixty-six. Well, it's not 666, at least. It's not the mark of the beast or the number of the beast, but two sixes. The actual number of books in the Bible is 49. Read our correspondence course. Some of you are new. Study it. The Jews put Psalm 1st and 2nd... 
Samuel and First and Second Kings and some of those books together. That's what they did, and Christ recognized that order. So they have their teaching, which they have always had, is 22 books in the Old Testament, 22, 27 books in the New Testament, the same number we have, and you can count that, of course, all the way from Matthew to Revelation, 27. 22 and 27 equals what? 49. What's the significance of 49? It was like God stamped his name right in the Bible. Seven is the perfect number. Seven times seven. Forty-nine. Forty-nine. That's how many books in the Bible. And God verified that in many ways. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. In other words, indicating this was the Word of God. What Scriptures? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? No. They hadn't been written yet, of course. The only Scriptures Christ talked about when he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God, Luke 4, 4, were the Old Testament scriptures. They are the scriptures, but they're magnified by the New Testament, of course. Then he said, it is written, it was necessary for Christ to suffer, to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached, of course, uh, in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem and you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promises of my Father upon you but tarry, old King James word, it means remain. It doesn't mean some Pentecostal hollering and screaming like some of them make it out. Remain in the city of Jerusalem until you're undued with power from on high. What was this power? Well, we all know it was the power of God's Spirit, and that's what's described through the whole book of Acts. So that was what was to happen. Now let's turn to the book of Acts, brethren. And this is one of the most exciting books in the whole Bible when you understand it and think about it in that way. This is what we ought to be like more and more as we grow as a church. As we learn to walk and to live by faith, turn to, if you would, to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, I'm going to skim some of these things so I don't run way, way over time here. Acts chapter 1, the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So this book, Acts, was written by Luke. We can see that the same dedication is given here that's given in the book of Luke. Luke, Paul's companion, Luke, the beloved physician, a very highly trained man wrote the book of Acts. It shows what Jesus began to do and teach. He said, Luke showed what God did, the book of Luke, indicating the book of Acts picks up the story and shows us what Jesus continued to do and preach. How did Jesus continue? He did it through his church. We are that church. He uses us. We don't have power of ourselves. We have the power of Almighty God. We have the power of the risen Jesus Christ. That's how we do the things we do and how we overcome and how we grow. Through Christ living his life within us. By what? By the power of God's Holy Spirit. So we've got to think about all of that on this day. To whom he also presented himself. Well, until the day he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he'd chosen. I skip reading verse 2. To whom the apostles he presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, miracles, 
being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And so then he commanded them again not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. So they were staying there waiting for the promise. And then they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And verse 7, he said, It is not for you to know the times of the seasons, which the Father has put in his own authority. He didn't give them an exact time. He said, you don't understand that yet. God is not revealing that yet. But you shall receive power. And boy, did they. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And they went out all over the Roman Empire, the, the civilized world at that time, preaching the message of Jesus Christ, that he was risen from the dead, that he was the Son of God, that he taught the way of God, and they talked about the coming kingdom of God. And then you find here in chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven. Now the Pentecostals, who call themselves these charismatic people, and again, I don't want to put them down, but I just don't want any of you deceived by them. And you young people need to understand this. Some of them think the noise comes out of their mouths. And they holler and scream, and they think that's it. Of course, the original Pentecost was not anyone hollering or screaming. They were just sitting there like we are. And great power came right out of the ceiling, right down from God in heaven. Suddenly a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting, and there appeared to them divided tongues, you know, like a fireplace has tongues of flame going up. In this case, the tongues of flame were coming down from the ceiling. It sat upon each of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The power of God's Spirit helped them speak in the different as the uh, actual commentary showed, the different, uh, not just languages, but the different dialects, the different dialects of the whatever part of the Roman Empire they were from. And part of the miracle here was in the hearing as well as in the speaking, because each one heard in his own language what the apostles were saying here. And some of them said, oh, these guys have been drinking. They tried to pretend like it was kind of hooping and hollering or drinking or something. And Peter said, this is not so. Verse 15, these are not drunk as you suppose since it's only the third hour of the day. Well, throughout the New Testament, they call, they started counting, as most of you know, at 6 a.m. So he said, look, fellas, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. There didn't been anyone drinking here. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Then he begins to quote Joel, was what? As the word of God. And again, any of you younger people, any newer people, the Old Testament is the Word of God. And Peter was validating that here as Jesus validated it. As dozens and dozens of scriptures in the New Testament show, this is the Word of God. And they start quoting from the Old Testament. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, and on my men servants and maid servants. God will pour out His Spirit on the ladies as well, on the faithful, dedicated women of God. I will pour out. You don't pour out a person. The Holy Spirit is not a person. When we get to talking about the Holy Spirit, I don't have time to go into a whole sermon on that, but the Holy Spirit is not a person. It's something that can be poured out. 
And of course, as you read through the introduction, any of you who are new, just read the introduction to every one of Paul's epistles. He'll say, thanks to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Over and over. Never once mentions the Holy Spirit. What an insult if the Holy Spirit was the third person in the God. The Holy Spirit is not a person. The Holy Spirit was poured out. And he said, on my spirit, on my servants, I'll pour out my spirit in those days. They shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in earth beneath, and so on, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. He says then in verse 22, Men and brethren, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man prophesied by God, by signs and wonders, which God did through him, you yourselves know. Now, the point is, God showed his power back there, and he talks about this being part of that fulfillment. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, he says. But this was only, again, a typical fulfillment. God, throughout the Bible, shows there's sometimes a small fulfillment. And the great falling away, there might have been a small fulfillment in type right after the original apostles. And maybe the terrible apostasy we had under Mr. Dukach and Joe Jr. and Mike Fazell and those guys was sort of a typical fulfillment. But the huge falling away, it's, it's going to be awful, is just ahead of us. Probably the next five or ten years or fifteen at the outside is already beginning. The whole groundwork is being laid for it right now. For all humanity turns away from an understanding of a real God. And they turn away, and then there'll be a big counter-reaction getting back, and that will be through the Catholic Church coming into that void, that void. And so that's what's going to happen in the next few years. But this was only a typical fulfillment. So at the time of the end, in the next several years, at some point, brethren, God will pour out His Spirit, and some of us will still be alive, and God will perform signs and wonders and great miracles, and right before the tribulation, and again right after the tribulation, before the day of the Lord, before God's supernatural intervention, you know, they're going to have the falling stars and heavenly signs and everything. All this will be fulfilled before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. But in the meantime, near the very end, God may give some of us the power to prophesy local drought, or earthquakes would come suddenly and we could tell our brethren in Los Angeles or San Francisco, you'd better leave because God's going to send an earthquake. He'll give us power as we are the first fruits of God to know things we could not know otherwise. God doesn't give us all the details. In the Bible, God gives us the big picture, but he doesn't give us all the twists and turns along the way. And we've learned that if we're walking with God surrender to God and to His government, saying, I'll do whatever you say, God, I mean it. My life is your life. It belongs to you. And we have that kind of faith. We will see that we will have more power as the end of this age approaches. And that's going to be a very, very exciting time. So He's going to give great power and miracles later. In chapter 3, turn over here, if you would now, to chapter 3 of the book of Acts. And you find here, uh, now Peter and John went up together into the temple and they found this man who'd been crippled from his mother's womb and he was begging and all he wanted was money. And in verse 4, fixing his eyes on him, John with Peter said, 
Peter said with John, look on us. And he gave them attention, expecting to receive something from them. All he wanted was money. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name or by the authority of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And he took him by the right hand, lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. It was a tremendous thing. At the beginning of the New Testament church, God often did that as you read through the book of Acts. When they would first go into a new area, God would often perform a whole series of miracles to show he was there. Then it seemed to fade for a while. Then they'd do something else and God would then have an extra series of miracles at that point. He didn't have continual miracles every day of every week. So the blind man or the crippled man held on to Peter and John in verse 11. And people were amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded, verse 12, Men of Israel, why do you look on us as though we by our power did this? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. And brethren, in your old King James, it says your, your child or something. Somehow the old Catholic Protestant idea is always Jesus is a little baby. The correct understanding is your servant, Jesus, whom you have delivered and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and asked for a murder to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life whom God raised from the dead. They constantly come back to the resurrection. It happened just then. One of the most dramatic miracles in human history. He was risen. He is risen. And boy, were they inspired by that. And his name... Through faith in his name, the authority of Christ has made this man strong whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which is through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. So when God heals, he heals completely. Whatever he heals, he will take care of it. He will take care of every necessary thing. And we do need to understand that and be encouraged, uh, of course, by that very, very much. Now let's go to chapter 4 of the book of Acts. Chapter 4 and beginning in verse 10. Here uh, he'd been talking about how the man was healed and they were persecuting him and why, what a power and authority this had been done. And so Peter answered them. These people of Jewish law authorities were questioning them, threatening them. Peter said, verse 10, let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. They keep coming back to that. You know, some of our departed brethren of recent day try to put down or make fun of us because we don't always talk about the resurrection, don't always talk about the kingdom of God, and we talk about Jesus Christ and what he did. Well, you read through the book of Acts, and that's about all they did talk about there in the early days. Christ and his resurrection, Christ and his resurrection over and over again. That is wonderful good news. That's part of the gospel. Good news, wonderful news. He is risen from the dead. By his name, this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. 
Brethren, this world is turning more and more away from God. You know that. If you read your papers, it's turning more and more away from Jesus Christ. Many more are joining the Islam religion, the Mohammedanism, or they're going into New Age this, and Christ is not real, or he was just an idea, an emanation of good. They don't have a profound respect for the Christ of the Bible. Let's not lose that in the church of God. We always want to have a profound respect for the Christ of the Bible, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Only through him and through his name can we gain eternal life. Otherwise, we're dead. We're goners. Don't ever forget it. Only through the name of Christ. There is no salvation in any other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So when they saw the boldness of Peter and John standing with this crippled man and perceived that they were untrained and uneducated as they had just been fishermen, these big doctorates who had their doctor's degree from Harvard Divinity School and all the big shot places, so to speak, of their age, they looked down on these men who made some grammatical mistakes, I guess, and didn't have perfect, nice, wonderful, mellifluous voices in the same way. But they had the power of God's Spirit, and they had knowledge, and they had the truth. They realized they'd been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. So they put them aside from the council and then commanded them not to teach in that name anymore. But Peter and John said, We cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Verse 20. So they went back to their friends and got together and showed their friends and the brethren in the church how they were threatened. And so then they all got together and prayed. Notice, brethren, turn here with me to verse 29. Acts 4, verse 29. Now, Lord, they prayed, look on their threats. And grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand. Now notice this. Grant that we may speak with boldness. How? By stretching out your hand to heal. If people are healed and that power is shown, then God's servants have a lot more faith and they have a lot more courage, even unto death if need be. God becomes more real. And brethren, I ask all of you to join many of us ministers who have been talking about it a lot more recently, not just because of my wife, but because of a whole bunch of us. Mr. Wayne Pilegame came up here and gave a wonderful opening prayer. And he is near death. I'm not frightening him. He knows that already. He's all man. But humanly speaking, he's near death. And he's up here praying to God a very powerful prayer. My wife is here today for the first time in several weeks. Without God, she's near death. Mrs. Lowe down in Atlanta is near death of cancer also. And many others are like that. We need to pray for them without we naming everybody else. Mr. Fitzroy Greenman is our elder down in the Caribbean. And he's in a serious death, life-threatening situation through kidney disease. God can heal anything. It doesn't make any difference to God. God is not frightened by cancer. God is not frightened by diabetes. God is not frightened by AIDS. You got AIDS, you're dead. No. God is not frightened by any of that. We worship the God who gives us life and breath. The God who said, let there be light. And there was light who created the heavens and the earth and the entire universe. That's the God we worship. And we need to understand the power of that God. So grant that we may speak with boldness by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name. Let's have faith in that name. 
faith. Ask God, beg God, cry out for faith in the name of Jesus Christ. That when the, And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken, a local earthquake. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. Yes, God really gave them unusual power at that time. But as we get near the end of the age, the Bible does indicate there will be more power. And God grant that we will have more of that kind of power. And I certainly hope and pray that we will. And we need to do our part so that we will. Turn now, brethren, to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 14, if you would. John, chapter 14. John's one of the most rich, spiritually deep books in the Bible. In John 14, Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. We better really believe in Jesus Christ, our Savior, that he died so we could be really fully reconciled to God. And he gave his body to be broken in that terrible beating that by his stripes we were healed. And we want to think about those stripes. And we want to think about the power of God's Holy Spirit that he made possible for us by his death that we can be reconciled to God and have the very Holy Spirit come into us. In my Father's house are many mansions. And as I've explained to you before, you turn back to John. I won't turn back there, but write it down if you want to. Chapter, the same book, John chapter 2, verse 16. He says, Why do you make my Father's house a house of merchandise? Several times Jesus of Nazareth identified the Father's house as the temple. They were misusing the temple and selling chickens and goats and various animals in there to sacrifice and making it all messed up and it had manure and birds flooding around and birds, uh, bird uh, droppings, no doubt, and bird feathers. And they were making money, getting people's minds on that. And, and they were typical business people going on in there. In my father's house are many offices as it was and can be translated at different places. They had a number of rooms or offices in the temple to denote the different, the secretary of state is here and the secretary of the treasury is over here and the secretary of human services is over here type things that we would have in Washington, D.C. It designated the job they had. In my father's house, the temple, in the temple are many different offices and the Protestants have misused this. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place an office, a position, a job, a position of service for you. And if I go and prepare a job for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also. And where is Christ going to be for the next 1,100 years after he comes? Read it in the book of Revelation and elsewhere. He'll be right on this earth. He went to the Father's throne briefly to be offered as the first of the first fruits. And we will go up there to the wedding supper briefly, but that's not going to be our permanent location. Our permanent location will be here. This is a beautiful world. And when God makes it beautiful again, I should say a beautiful earth, not the system, but the earth. He'll make it gorgeous again. And we will be on this earth at familiar settings, so to speak, but teaching people God's way of life for the next 1,100 years. So he said, where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said, remember this was doubting Thomas, as he later got to be called, he always asked questions. He wasn't sure of this and not sure of that. 
Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am it. I've shown you how to live, how to pray, how to serve, how to sacrifice. I've lived that way of life. You saw me day and night and day and night, giving, helping, serving, teaching, healing, blessing all day long. Let's think about that. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We want to really understand the profound feeling we need to have for Christ. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. He comes back a different way. We want to see God. He never was sure that Christ was crucified and had those nails, unless he could seal the nail prints right in his side and in his arms, I should say. Remember, in that case, he had to sort of physically see. Show us the Father. Jesus said, have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? Here was God in the flesh walking and talking with him day after day. They were out on the big boat and a great storm comes up and Jesus was asleep. He'd been teaching people for hours apparently. He was a young 31, 32-year-old man. He wasn't real old at that time. But he got tired too. He just laid down on the bow of the ship or the bottom of the big boat, went to sleep. He had a peaceful sleep. He wasn't worried about anything. Then he's shaking. Jesus, we're about to perish. Aren't you going to help us? We're about to perish. And he got up and rebuked the sea and the waves, and they just stopped like that. And they were astonished. And he said, why have you no faith? What's wrong with you human beings? You've seen me. God, the God we serve, my brethren, in the days to come, some of us may be thrown in jail. And God will get us out supernaturally if he has to. Some of us may be beaten up or injured. God will heal us and bring us back if he has to. We have to trust in God, have faith in God, and have God's Holy Spirit working in you and in me day by day and hour by hour. For we know that we are Christ's servants and God is going to take care of us. He's going to help us. He's going to heal us. He's going to bless us. He's going to deliver us no matter what. If we put our faith and trust in God, why have you no faith? Jesus asked them on that occasion and quite a number of other occasions. In other words, he realized those young men could have trusted in God the same way he did and just said, be still. And the great storm would have stopped right then. But they didn't have that kind of faith. They didn't understand. They didn't realize who he was. Of course, God hadn't fully opened their mind. Have you known me so long, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. You've seen God. Not God in his full glory, but the whole character of God manifested in the flesh. That's, if you've seen what, and the way I live, the way I teach and preach and help and heal and bless and encourage all day long, then you have seen the Father. That's the way the Father does. I reflect the mind of the Father. I reflect the personality of the Father. I reflect the character of the Father. He did that all day long. And they were with him, most of them, most of the day, all day long for three years. But they still didn't get it. Peter denied him three times right near the end. Of course, the Holy Spirit again was not yet with them. Boy, does the Holy Spirit make a difference. And I hope that the vast majority of you have God's Spirit. And I think those of you who are older have been baptized. Most of you do have I wrote an article back in the 1950s or 60s in the Plain Truth magazine, False Conversion, a Mortal Danger. 
some have been dunked in the water and they were not converted and some do not have God's Spirit. I could point to you the picture, beautiful picture, Howard Clark put together the best college yearbook we ever had in 1966 called The Envoy and there were the pictures of that said the vice presidents and it's amazing how many of those men fell away without me naming them all. About half of them left the church completely. The vice presidents, the leading evangelists in the whole church of God fell away. Why? Some of them never had God's spirit at all. And I don't claim to know everything. I don't. I make mistakes, hundreds of them. And I'm not God. But I remember telling my wife about a number of them. This guy is playing games. And I knew that. And I knew that I knew that he was not converted or, or very shallowly converted. And sure enough, among three or four, that was not a surprise to me at all. There are people of you sitting here that are not converted. You've been dumped. But it, the vaccination did not take be sure, brethren, I'm not trying to frighten you or make you feel bad, but I want you to be there. I'm not saying who you are. I don't know who you are. But as God shows you, you each one in this room, try to be sure you do have God's Holy Spirit, that you have help from the outside that you never had before, that you sense the power of God coming into you to help you grow, to help you overcome yourself, overcome the world, overcome Satan the devil. God's nature, God's power comes in you through the Holy Spirit. So you want to understand that Christ will live within you through the Holy Spirit if you really have it. So he says here, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say so as the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? God lives in each of us who are converted through his Spirit. And the words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me, he does the works. We don't do the work of God, and it's, it's not wrong to say the work we're doing, but technically it's the way the work God is using us to do. It's God doing it. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me. God lives in you if you have God's Spirit. The Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works. As you see, brethren, us preaching the truth all over the world, as you see people's lives being changed, as you see the work growing in power, as you see our understanding of prophecy above anyone else on earth, you can begin to realize God is here, God is working. But one thing we're not lacking and we're not full of, but we need a lot more of, is the direct healings and blessings from God in that way. And we need to pray about that. Cry out to God for that. Cry out to God for that. I want to ask all of you to do that. He may do some of that yet this day. I say yet this day because on the original day of Pentecost, you find a whole bunch of people then begin to be healed and things begin to happen on the original day of Pentecost. Not the original, but the, the original one in the New Testament. And back in 1958, my friend Richard David Armstrong, just before he died... It was God as though God was saying, Dick's okay. I thought about this later. I'm sure Mrs. Apartin remembers that time. But to me, it was kind of a somehow later. I didn't understand it at the moment. I got Mr. Armstrong to go with me to the Turner Stevens mortuary and pray for Dick right while he was lying on the slab, frankly. 
we went in there together and asked God to raise him from the dead. And God did not choose to do that. And when Mr. Armstrong was giving the funeral sermon, I was looking up at Mount Wilson because it was up uh, up to the hills. My power will come. I just somehow looked up there. I thought maybe God will heal him right now. But he didn't. But it was though I realized later God gave Dick three unusual miracles just before he died. And as you look back, I could see that. I won't cite the other two, but the other two were definite miracles. But the most outstanding one was that over this day, this day, the day of Pentecost, 1958, I'd been off in Chicago conducting Pentecost services for a big combined church meeting up there. And after I got back home, we didn't have the Internet and all the text messages you guys have today, and we didn't make as many long-distance calls as we do today. Things seem to be more expensive. Anyway, I got back from Pentecost, and as I came in to Pasadena, the young man from the college, he brought me in and said, Well, Mr. Meredith, did you hear that Howard Clark was healed? Well, I had baptized Howard Clark. I taught him after he was healed and sat in classes. I liked him. Wow, he was healed. I didn't know that. He's the one that used to sit right on that side over here in the right aisle from the Shakespeare Club. And I'd see him back there sitting in his wheelchair, a quadriplegic who had injuries all through his body from the Korean War. He and I were the same age. He'd gone into battle in Korea and got injuries all through. Well, maybe he didn't go to a doctor, you might say. Oh, no, he went to all the doctors. He was in a whole series of the top medical hospitals. The government sent him there. The doctors did everything. They couldn't heal him. He sat over there on the day of Pentecost, 1958. Dick Armstrong prayed for him, and he was healed by God. Supernaturally. It's amazing. And I told you the story about seeing him the next day and, and how he got and walked for me and so on. I won't go through the whole story. Most of you have heard that. It was very meaningful. I will never forget that. Pentecost. Today is Pentecost. Let's pray fervently that God will pour out His Spirit, as was mentioned by Mr. Pyle in the opening prayer. Don't forget it. The day of Pentecost is not yet over till 8.30 tonight. <laughs> Turns out to be exactly 8.30 tonight. Still plenty of time. Ask God to begin to heal people, not just here in this church, but all over, according to His will. He may not heal everyone all at once, but he may begin to heal over this very weekend and even yet this day of the day of Pentecost, 2012. He may begin to pour out his spirit more this day, 2012. So we have to have faith that God is there and he's alive. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does do certain things more at certain times. Of course he does. We know that. He poured out his spirit a lot as the church began. That is the church age ended there. With the death of the original apostles, the miracles got less. And then as Mr. Armstrong came back and a new work started, more miracles were taking place. And Mr. Armstrong, in his early age, his early ministry, had more zeal and more personal involvement in the ministry. And this lady whose arm was withered grew right out. I've told you about that. Other people were healed supernaturally through Mr. Armstrong and his prayers and through many of us. That God is alive today. He is not gone. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or believe me for the works. Most assuredly, I say to you, the work, or he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. We're going to do more and more of those works. 
let's draw close to God so that that may happen and so that we may be changed more too spiritually. So he will do those works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I go to my father. Peter even performed, in a certain sense, greater works. And I don't know totally, I'll be honest with you, how that applies. Part of it may be through the Internet that Mr. Wyatt is helping us to get going. We'll have the media today. Things are reaching even more hundreds of millions of people because of partly the, the, the capacity that we have through those ways. It's not that we're all going to do greater miracles than Christ did, but we will be doing similar ones because Peter's shadow passing over people, heal them, as you remember, in Acts 5. If you haven't, not familiar, Acts chapter 5, verse 15. Even his shadow passing over people, heal them. You talk about the power of God's Holy Spirit. So he says, whatever you ask in my name, I'll do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son, if you ask anything in my name. What does in his name mean? Remember that. Not just saying in the name of Jesus. These Pentecostal preachers holler out the name of Jesus. In the name means not only using the name. It means by the authority. You've got to have the authority. And you've got to be in God's will. It has to be according to God's will. You see. And God's will is to heal in this life most of the time. But if Joe Jones or Joe... uh, Well, I'll just use that name. He was a friend of mine. He did die, but just a name that comes out. If he were to get anointed when he was 65 and 6 and then God heals him, then he got got sick at age 72 and barely made it to the ministry of time and God healed him. And he kept doing that up to 97. And then he still got to the minister. Would God keep giving him life and clear on up to 120 or 30? No. At some point, everybody dies in this life. So we figure that out according to God's will. And I will pray the Father. Now, it says, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's how you show love to God and to Christ. You live that way of life. You let Christ live his life in you. And again, let's go back to that basic scripture I love, uh, the best one-verse description of true Christianity in the Bible, just in one verse. I'm crucified with Christ, Paul wrote. Yet I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live with the faith of, not in, but faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If Christ lives in you, you will be blessed, you will grow, you will overcome to the degree that Christ lives his life in you. That's what it's all about. He lives in you through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. It means paraclete. It means one who comes in alongside of a helper. It doesn't do everything, but it comes in alongside of us and helps us and gives us strength, gives us understanding, gives us help that we would not have. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. No, the world talks about the Holy Spirit, but they don't even understand what it is. We do know, but you know him, for he dwells with you. And the Greek word here, he, as you know, is a pronoun, can be properly translated it. It dwells with you and shall be in you. So the Holy Spirit was helping the apostles, and yet Peter denied Christ three times just before Christ died. 
because the Holy Spirit had been with Peter, helping him, but the Holy Spirit was not yet in Peter until after the day of Pentecost, 31 A.D. Suddenly you find a changed Peter, a Peter with tremendous courage, tremendous understanding, tremendous power, the power of God's Holy Spirit. So we want to understand that and realize the power that is available there as we walk with God and have that power. Turn back to verse 23 now. John chapter 14, verse 23. Jesus said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Brethren, I've told you again and again, please learn to feed on this book. Don't be bashful about it. John 6, verse 57. He who feeds on me. How are you filled with Christ? You feed on this book. You read it. You kind of open your Bible and go back over it again and again. So you learn to think like this. This is the mind of God in print. The mind of God, the mind of Christ in print. Feed on it. Study it regularly. For you think like this. So he says this. He will keep my word. If you love him, keep his word. And my father will love him. And we, God the Father and Christ the Son, will come to him and make our home with him. How? Again, through the Holy Spirit. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And my word the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father has sent me. These things have spoken. But the Helper, verse 26, again the paraclete, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send. God the Father sends the Holy Spirit through Christ, whom the Father will send in my name, in Christ's authority. Christ is the mediator. Christ is the Savior who made it possible to reconcile us to God. Christ is the high priest. Christ is the living head of the church who may, with God the Father, decide, well, let's give this man the gift of faith. Let's give this man the gift of wisdom. Let's give this man the gift of preaching. Let's give this woman the faith of whatever. Different men and women have different gifts through God's Spirit. But they're given through God and the Christ giving these gifts. So the Holy Spirit will be coming in Christ's name. He will teach you or it will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I've said to you. So the Holy Spirit comes within us, gives us understanding, gives us strength to do God's will. So we really want to understand that deeply and profoundly and appreciate what this means, the power, the power of God's Holy Spirit. Now, brethren, I'm going to have to cut this short finish it next Pentecost I guess (laughs) but uh, I enjoy preaching to you out of the word of God I do want to give you before closing I take a little extra time how do you get this power I think most of you know we've told you so many times but you've got to do it to have this kind of power turn back to Daniel the ninth chapter Daniel chapter 9 and here Daniel was at a time of pagan the pagan king here And he began to wonder why God had cut his people off. And then he says in verse 3, Daniel 9, 3, Then I set my face toward the eternal God to make requests by prayer, supplications, fasting, sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O eternal, great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and mercy and with those who keep his commandments, we have sinned. And brethren, let's cry out to God ourselves and say, Father in heaven, we are not as close to you as we should be. Help us repent. Help us to grow. Pour out your spirit. 
Help us to become more totally in contact with you and walk with you and have you living within us, moving within us. We have sinned. And then at that end of that prayer, as you'll see, he was given this vision of the 70 weeks prophecy showing when Christ was to come. And then you find back in Deuteronomy, please turn back to Deuteronomy and beginning in verse 20, uh, chapter, um, chapter 4, chapter 4 of Deuteronomy and verse 25. He says, when you beget children and grandchildren and have grown old in the land and act corruptly and make carved images, then I call heaven and earth. You'll perish. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples. You'll be left few in number. And, the, and you'll be driven out. And notice verse 28. There, when you've been driven out and taken captive, you will serve other gods. And that's what our nation is doing. And they're going to do it even more as they're taken into slavery. The work of men's hands, wood and stone, neither see nor hear nor smell. But from there, you will seek the eternal, your God. And brethren, that's what we've got to do now. We don't want to have to wait till the tribulation to do that. He says, you should then begin to seek the eternal, your God, and you will find him if, the biggest two-letter word in the English language, if, if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. Father in heaven, give us the Holy Spirit. Pour out your power upon us. Bless this church. Give us miracles and signs and wonders. Give us healings. Have mercy upon us. Empower us through your spirit. That's the way we should begin to pray, even today. And when you are in distress, and all these things come upon you in the latter days, and that's where we are now, and our nation is beginning to go down and down, and our dear brethren over in Britain, and Canada, and Australia, New Zealand, the people of Ephraim and Manasseh are being brought down for our sins. These things come upon you in the latter days, when you turn to the Lord your God and obey His voice. So that's when it's going to happen. And that's when we have to cry out to God with all of our heart and with all of our soul, all of our being. Help us, Father. Forgive us, Father. Clean us up. Scrub us out. Pour out upon us this magnificent power by which you created the heavens and the earth, the power of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus may be fully manifested in our bodies and that we may glorify you and glorify your name and really prepare for the kingdom of God, and we may be honorable, first fruits, first fruits of the salvation of this entire earth, and ready to be those kings and priests in the coming kingdom of God. This is original Christianity. This is true Christianity. And we've got to get back to that Christianity and build a degree of faith, an atmosphere of faith and love and obedience, and the absolute love and worship and adoration of God above and beyond what we've ever had before. Let's seek God with all of our hearts on this day of Pentecost.